Good morning, everybody. Stephen already uh, talked a lot about it, kind of stole my opening line. I was going to talk about how cold it is, uh, but that's okay. I'll still say what I have to say. It's cold out. <laughs> it's past that, um, that like, nice fall weather where it's like a nice light jacket, and now it's kind of like, oh, I, I, I want snow now, so at least it's pretty, you know? Um, but word to the wise, and you did not hear this from me, but um, if you need a little pick-me-up to help you through winter, Halloween candy normally goes on sale the day after Halloween. So next Sunday, the day after Halloween, if you all want to zip on over to CVS, far be it from me to tell you not to. All right. So the last time that I preached, I started with an illustration on road rage, which led to the topic of anger. This illustration was apparently popular, which might not be the best thing, but I am really glad that we were able to apply God's law to a specific area in our life, right? That's encouraging. So praise God for that. This time I want to start out with another example that's somewhat in the same vein, And that's the example about revenge. Now, we've all thought about revenge, right? It seems that today most action movies have a revenge subplot. We're consistently feeding that revenge is good. And I know that a lot of us have fantasies of exactly what we would say to that person if we didn't have any filter. But then other days, we don't have a filter. We treat those we love passive-aggressively or sarcastically because they hurt our feelings. We give less effort to something when we're asked to do it by someone we don't really like. We keep track of how many things others have done for us and then use that as justification for how to treat them. We tend to hold others to a higher standard than we hold ourselves, demanding justice when someone does something that we don't like and we don't like that person, but then demanding mercy when we ourselves do the same thing or someone we like does the same thing. That's why it's so important to remember with the Sermon on the Mount and when we hear Jesus give these commands that God's laws weren't meant to be controlled by our emotions, but rather made to govern them. God's laws were made to govern our emotions. Our sinful hearts and our passions get in the way of us following God's law. And that law was made to prevent us from getting controlled by sin. I used this example previously, but... Just like rules in a professional football game are meant to prevent uh, injuries, to promote fair play, to prevent cheating, in a very bigger sense, the law of God is put in place to prevent us from dying of our own sin, to prevent sin, which leads to ultimately death. You see, Jesus knows that there's a problem with our hearts. Our hearts produce passions, which lead to sin and drives us to sin, such as personal revenge. There's not anything wrong with the law which exposes sin and punishes those who do it, but there is something wrong with our sinful hearts when we want to take revenge or demand more and more justice or maybe, on the flip side, want to see the guilty walk free because of our favoritism towards them. So going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're trying to see what does a disciple of Jesus look like. And we see that it's taking the law applying it to our hearts as the origin of sin. And by applying this law to our heart, it raises the standard to what only Jesus can and has done for us. So therefore, our reliance must be on him. 
So that's what's going to happen in our passage today. As Jesus talks about the age-old principle of eye for an eye, which was rightfully created to prevent revenge or leniency, and applies it to our hearts to prevent revenge and retribution in even the smallest manners. Ultimately, it's a firm reminder that God's laws are not dependent on our willingness or lack thereof. God's calling for us to love others through actions and words is not dependent on how they treat us, but rather how we have been treated by God. Let me say that one more time. God's calling for us to love others through action and word is not dependent on how they treat us, but rather how we have been treated by God. So let's read our text today and see how Jesus brings the Old Testament principle of eye for an eye and applies it to our hearts by saying, turn the other cheek. Our text today is Matthew 5, 38 to 42. It's in your bulletin. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. So again, Jesus starts out his Sermon on the Mount with the words, You have heard that it was said. He says this because his audience was familiar, as we are, with the, uh, with the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This law was most explicitly given in the book of Leviticus, the book of laws, where it reads, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal life shall make a good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc., etc. This law made it clear what punishments were expected and required. So we have a few examples here consisting of murders and broken body parts and injuries. But the, pr but the principle was that no matter who was injured, no matter who died, the punishment was the same. The restitution was the same. The person who committed the crime must give what was taken. If you murder someone, you put to death. You took a life, so you give your life. If you injure someone, you must take that injury. If you kill someone's animal, then you must pay however much that animal was worth, etc., etc. Now, this law can often be criticized for being too cruel or barbaric, which there certainly is a basis for. But as we know with reading these laws, it wasn't often just a verbatim law, black and white. Trust me, the Israelites did not maim their own citizens after someone was injured, and rest in confidence knowing that there's no example in the Old Testament of Moses gouging someone's eyes out. Didn't happen. What this is, instead of a verbatim law to be used, was actually a guiding principle for the Israelite leaders, such as Moses or the judges. There were systems in place to determine if someone was guilty, just like there are today. So yes, if someone was convicted of murder, they will be put to death as the principal guides, but that murder would have to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. But if someone had broken a man's arm, the judge wouldn't just go and break their arm they would just simply have to pay the man for his lost wages at work. So this guiding principle of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was put in place to guide the decision-making process of the judges for what a just sentence would be. So for example, if someone killed someone else's ox and the judge was good friends with the defendant, it would be unjust and against this principle to allow him to walk away free without paying anything. Or on the flip side, if someone broke someone else's leg, and the judge was good friends with the prosecutor, it would be unjust and against this principle to charge him with a death penalty simply for breaking someone's leg. 
As you can see, this was to prevent two very real and unjust scenarios being too lenient or too harsh. It's put in place to prevent a situation, like in Genesis 4, where we read a man named Lamesh say, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamesh's is seventy-sevenfold. He has killed a man for wounding him and even a young boy for striking him. He boasts of his revenge. That's unjust. This is why the principle is put in place for the law so that the punishment would fit the crime rather than the punishment fitting social status or personal vendettas or favoritism. Even the books of the law in Leviticus spoke out against this more explicitly, saying, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This law principle, an eye for an eye, was a blessing from God, given so that we may understand that justice should not be too lenient or too harsh, but just. So if we're on board with the whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing as a principle, and that Jesus references here in our text, then why does Jesus turn the bill on us? Read the text again with me. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. The law was referring to taking only what is due as punishment, right? But then Jesus commands of all cheeks to be slapped, all cloaks to be taken, and all miles to be walked. Why is the bill suddenly turned on us here? Why do we have to do something? Look at the second sentence of this passage. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. You have to remember that within this context, Jesus is referring to the law of punishment for an evildoer. He is saying, this is the punishment that they will receive, but you do not resist the one who is evil. You do not resist. You do not, give to get, you do not get to give that punishment. This law does not mean that if someone breaks your leg, that you have a legal obligation to go find them, break into their home, and break their leg. Jesus says that our hearts should be free from revenge, from seeking personal retribution, or twisting the law to do either one of those things. So unless we are a judge or in another position to execute judgment, we should not be applying the eye for an eye principle in our own lives. However, I'm sure that many of us have used this eye for an eye principle to justify sin in our own lives. Maybe you're upset at that coworker that goes above you at work, so you purposely block their idea at a meeting. Maybe you've had a falling out with a friend, so when you hear a rumor about them, you just let it pass without trying to correct it. Maybe you even add to it. Maybe a child has been extra difficult this past week, so you care for them passive-aggressively rather than lovingly. These examples are exactly why Jesus had to clarify this law for our hearts. So again, let me make this really clear. Unless we are in a position to lovingly judge others, such as a judge to those on trial, a principal of a school or a teacher to their students, a parent to their child, church elders to a congregation, unless we are in a position to judge then we do not have the authority to execute the eye for an eye principle. We don't have the authority to seek revenge and take it. So Jesus is saying here, since we do not have the additional responsibility of love, 
then by default, we are in a position to love and not resist the one who is evil, but rather lovingly give graciously. Lovingly give graciously. Because loving is an act of giving. We give someone gifts when we love them. We give of our time. We give of ourselves. That's why Jesus says in the final verse to give to the one who begs. Love them by giving of yourself. And I say loving so much because, as we all know, this has a lot to do with our attitudes, right? Even though we don't want to do something or we feel hurt, our attitude needs to be without grumbling and without questioning, as Philippians says. But what about the evildoer? We don't love the evildoer. They don't beg things of us. They take, they borrow, they steal. Jesus says to show love to them too by not refusing them. He says, do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. And trust me, I know this is really, really hard to do. So hard, in fact, that we can wonder where to even begin. A great first step is to pray that the Lord will give you the strength and compassion to love someone even when it's hard and even when you don't want to. But for all this talk of not taking justice into your own hands when insulted or persecuted or wronged, then it begs the question, will evildoers get punished? If an eye for an eye is not for us common folk to execute, will it ever be executed? Will the evil ever be punished? Will we ever see justice done? Short answer, yes. As Romans 12 encourages us, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When the Lord returns to judge the living and the dead, those who have had their sins cleansed by Christ will go into the glory of heaven to worship the Lord forever. But those who refuse his love, those who continue to bully, abuse, persecute, hate, destroy, and refuse to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord, they will receive their just payment, as God will use the eye for an eye principle to give them the just punishment for their sin, which is eternal death. So moving forward, when we talk about what it means to not refuse the one who is evil, Know that Jesus' examples begin and end with insults, restitution, and effort. Let me make this very clear. If there is an area or relationship in your life that is marked by abuse, criminal activity, or violence, please call the authorities. Talk to a trusted member of authority or otherwise save yourself from that situation. Do not read the examples in our text, such as turn the other cheek, as an excuse or reasons to justify harmful things done to you. These examples aren't talking about that. If you have been abused, if you have suffered in the past, hear the encouragement that I previously said from Romans 12. The Lord will avenge. Vengeance is the Lord. And he will bring justice through the proper means in this life and his final judgment of death when he returns again. So let's take a look at the examples that Jesus provides to better understand what exactly we're talking about here. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. 
He says, do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. So we have examples of insults, restitution, and persecution. The prime example, the first example that we see, is quite possibly the most famous one. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now this verse is just a classic example of why we need to read things in context, right? Jesus is not endorsing any type of violence here, not from the oppressor, not from the victim. It does not mean that your oppressor get two hits in and then you're allowed to get at him. No. This verse does not have anything to do with violence, but rather with insults. A slap on the cheek is an insult. It's an attack on one's pride and one's character. We know this because one of the common expressions when someone is seriously insulted is to compare their words to what? A slap on the face. So how does Jesus tell us to respond with personal insults, even insults great enough to be considered a slap on the face? By turning the other cheek, by refusing to slap them back. Now this reaction is greater than simply doing nothing and certainly greater than retaliation. This reaction is loving because instead of insulting them or ignoring them and doing nothing, we act in love by giving them another chance. What do I mean by another chance? I mean if someone insults you by calling you a pushover or weak because of your humility or something that you've done that's shown humility, continue to act in humility, continue to lovingly act others, and therefore give them another chance to insult you. Or to give another example, if you're a teenager who is being bullied, or let's be honest, adults get bullied too. It's not just a high school thing. If you're being bullied for either what you wear, like your style or your work ethic, or maybe your hobbies, do not discontinue to do what you love or what you need to do just so that they will stop bullying you. Continue to live your life and trust that the Lord and those in authorities will defend you while you turn the other cheek. We act in love by turning the other cheek and giving them another chance by continuing to live humbly and lovingly despite insults to our character. Oh, as Proverbs 11 says it, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Or later in Proverbs 12, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. We can freely ignore insults and even turn the other cheek because we know that our salvation is not based on our pride or our honor or what other people think of us. It's based on Christ. So even though it's nice to have pride, it's nice to know that other people think well of us, it's nice to be honored, we don't need those things. We don't. All we need is Christ. And of course, this does not mean that you can't ask for help for someone in authority because you're being bullied or harassed. Please do that. It does not mean, or it does mean rather, that your response should be to not insult back, but to turn the other cheek by continuing to love them even though they treat you poorly. And one final quick note on insults. Not everything that is said against you is an insult. If someone is lovingly urging you to forsake a wrong action or sin, listen and repent. Do not automatically assume that they are insulting you because they're saying something against you. Context is important in our own lives as well. Listen. Next, we have an example of restitution. Jesus says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
In the previous example with insults, we had someone doing us wrong by insulting us. But what if we have done something wrong? What if we have insulted someone or treated someone wrongly and we got sued for it or otherwise must uh, give restitution for that? What if we did something wrong? Remember what I said previously, that all of these actions are a loving reaction, not a resistful movement and not an excuse to do nothing. Loving must be done in action as well as in word. So the loving reaction when being punished and demanded for restitution is not only to give what is expected, but to give more. If anyone sue you or take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. What does this mean in our life? If you need to apologize, don't just send a text or a quick email. Go find that person, stand six feet away from them, and apologize to their face. Apologize to them directly. Letting them know that you are truly sorry. Or if you are given detention in school for a wrong committed, then attend detention fully and even write an apology letter as well. If your spouse is upset at you because you didn't take out the trash, take out the trash and make your spouse a nice dinner as well. The point here is twofold. If you are being punished for something wrong that you've done, one, acknowledge your wrongdoing, and two, apologize by going above and beyond what is asked. We should have the attitude of Zacharias, who in Luke 19 says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. We can freely give of ourselves lovingly when we do wrong, because we know that we are representatives of our Lord Jesus Christ, who commands us in our word to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and we will be exalted. We represent Jesus best when we humbly admit to our wrongdoing because we show that our salvation is not in our pride, our belongings, or even in our accomplishments. It is in Jesus Christ who can never be taken away from us. What makes our God most attractive is when we represent him well through humility in ourselves and pride in our God. Humility in ourselves and pride in our God. That's why the word says that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And finally, we have an example of actual persecution. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, as Jesus says. Now for us today, this might seem like a little bit of a random example. But for Jesus' original audience, his actual listeners, when he said this, this would have hit really close to home. You see, where Jesus lived, Judea, was a Roman providence. That means that it was under the control of Rome, who controlled it by deploying Roman soldiers and taking high taxes. It was ruled over by a Roman governor, who was the same one that later uh, sentenced Jesus to crucifixion. The people of Judea were not fans of the Roman government, as the Romans were Gentiles or non-Jewish, and they imposed high taxes in a distorted view of justice. The Roman soldiers that enforced these rules would be legally allowed to let any Jewish occupant carry their stuff for one mile, carry their backpacks, all their stuff. And those backpacks would weigh around 66 pounds. So carrying that in the hot sun, in the rough terrain, would have not been so fun. There were actually white mile markers on the roads that would be used for this exact purpose. In addition... Remember that they were forced to carry the backpacks one mile 
and then they would have to walk one mile back to where they were, making it two miles total. This is something, obviously, that the Jewish people do not appreciate. And yet Jesus tells them that if these Roman soldiers force you to go one mile with them, go two miles with them, which, remember, is four miles once you walk all the way back. Not only should you do more than what is required of you for someone you don't like, you do it even when you don't like someone and you're being forced to. Go the extra mile when you want to, and especially when you don't. So even though you might not like that new coworker, and you honestly think they're pretty annoying, you help them out and you train them on things even though you weren't told to. Or if you have to do a school group project and you're assigned a group of people that you don't really like and they don't do their part of the project, you do your part of the project. You go the extra mile when your group doesn't do, do theirs. Or even if your child misbehaves, after punishing them, you take them out to a favorite restaurant or a movie, and you make it clear it's not to reward them for getting through the punishment, right? But simply because you love them, and you still love them. We are free to go the extra mile because we know that our salvation and God's love for us is not dependent on our works, but on Christ's works for us. And therefore, what we do is not an attempt to earn God's love, but rather imitate it for his glory. Let me say that one more time. We are free to go the extra mile because we know that our salvation and God's love for us is not dependent on our works, but on Christ's works for us. And therefore, what we do is not an attempt to earn Christ's love, but rather imitate it for his glory. And remember, like I said before, that all of these loving reactions are only loving through attitude. If we grumble our way through going the extra mile, or we complain and gossip when someone insults us, or we grumble while apologizing, what does others see of our God? What does that say about how we view God? What does that say about how you view God? Our actions and reactions either show an immense trust in a God that is always sufficient, or sometimes our actions and reactions show that we view God as an excuse when we want to unjustly punish others. Let's be honest. We would be fine with having someone not insult us back. We would be fine with having someone go the extra mile and uh, apologize with an apology letter or a gift when they do us wrong. But when it's asked of us, we can feel a little uncomfortable. But remember what I said earlier and really let this soak in. God's law is not dependent on our willingness or lack thereof. His calling for us to love others through actions and through words is not dependent on how they treat us, but rather how we have been treated by God. But if you don't know what God has done for you, then how can you represent him well and learn from him? We can only freely give riches of love and mercy by knowing of his love and mercy towards us. The less we know of God, the less we know how to be a disciple of God. But even with that knowledge of God, I understand that this is a lot. Jesus' original audience would have completely understood that. I'm serious. Let's take a moment and think about how Jesus' audience would have heard this, especially the last part about going the extra mile. They weren't happy about the Roman occupation. They weren't. And having their God come down to them in the flesh they were most likely expecting him to immediately thrust out all the Roman soldiers 
and give the church control of the entire nation. That's what you would expect if God came down in the flesh, right? Instead, what does Jesus do? He barely mentions the Roman government. And when he does, he says things like walk with them two miles instead of one and pay their taxes. And then when he is arrested by the Roman government, instead of breaking free and killing them all, he is silent during the trial and then is crucified and buried. Even when he rises from the grave three days later, he doesn't destroy the government that killed him. He told others to preach of his victory over sin and death, knowing that the troubles of this present time are not to compare with the glory that is to come. Now that sounds really great to us now, right? But if you get into the mindset of the Jews of that time, they were probably really, really, really disappointed. The problem is not that Jesus wasn't good enough for them. The problem was, as it often is with us, if we're honest, we expect a different Jesus. We expect a Jesus to act like us, to do what we want us to do, or we want him to do. But Jesus is so much better than anything we can imagine or picture him as. We don't have to imagine what he has said or twist what he has said to fit our agenda because he has spoken, definitely. He's spoken in his holy word, the Bible, and he will never go back on all his promises or love that was spoken there. If you hear a Christian say something or a preacher says something that sounds a little fishy, you don't have to guess. You can go to his word. You can test what they say against scripture. His word tells us that Jesus understands injustice better than anyone else. Because the greatest injustice in the entire history of the entire universe was done when the innocent, sinless Christ took on the sins of the entire world. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Among him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus is the one who preaches and then acts as a perfect example. Jesus did way more than turn the other cheek. He took constant harassment on the way to the cross. He took a crown of thorns to mock his name. He did way more than give a cloak. His clothes were violently taken from him and cast in for lots. He did way more than go the extra mile for us. He carried the cross meant for us and was even crucified on it. He sacrificed himself and took the entire penalty for our sins. Because of Jesus' acts of love for us, we can freely commit acts of love towards other people. We can freely give to the one who begs from us and not refuse the one who will borrow from us, as our passage says today. We can freely give of ourselves because we know that with God filling us up, we will never run dry, but consistently overflow. When we are consistently overflowing with the love of God, our attitude will be to freely love others by turning the other cheek, giving of our cloaks, and going the extra mile for win, even when we don't want to. So in conclusion, the next time it's easy to hold a grudge, to take revenge, or to treat others differently based on how they've treated you, remember our Christ 
Remember our Christ and his actions, how he fills you up with his love and mercy, and that should impact your heart. Remember that Jesus doesn't want us to just have a list of all the good things that we've done. He wants us to become holy by having our hearts become more in tune with his and less in tune with sin. We see the process and we see the evidence of that by our good works. There were some really tough demands in the Sermon on the Mount. Things that seem too hard or even impossible. Especially next week when we read the passage about how we are to love our enemies and even pray for those who persecute us. And then we're going to get a trial by fire for that with the election. We need to remember that we can only follow through on those commands through the freedom given to us in Christ. We are free from the pressure and lure of sin. We are free to give and give and give and give and give because he has given all of himself to us so that we can freely flow over to others. We are free to trust in him for our deliverance and to be our refuge and to punish the evildoer for us so we don't have to. We may not always be in a position to judge, but he always is. He is and will judge on the day of his return. Hear the encouragement of Psalm 94 as we close. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous, and they condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God the rock and my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity, and will wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. So church, do not take justice into your own hands. Do not seek revenge or retribution. Instead, we generously give of ourselves, knowing that the Lord who fills us with his love is the one who ultimately justifies. He is our rock and our firm foundation. So put your trust in this Lord, who is your help. He holds you up. He cheers your soul. He is your stronghold and your rock of refuge. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us. We thank you so much for saving us of our sins. We thank you so much for taking the insults for us, taking the harassment. We thank you so much for giving so much for us when you have done nothing. We thank you so much for your mercy and love in this way, Lord. Help us to imitate your love for your glory. Help us not to do it for ourselves or for our salvation, knowing that our salvation is in you. Lord, trust us, bless us in this way. Let us glorify your name for what you have done for us. In Christ's name. Amen.